Yuldrich Zwingli was born January 1st, 1484, in a high alpine valley in Switzerland, only a, a few weeks after Martin Luther was born in Germany. Zwingli's village was situated about 2,000 feet above Zurich Lake, and the family lived in a log cabin on the outskirts of the village. The Zwinglis were a devoted Catholic family with 10 children in all. Ulrich's father was a shepherd and was respected by all that knew him. And as a child, his mother would tell them stories from the Bible, and his father would tell them stories connected with the history of Switzerland. And so the love for the Bible and love for the, the, the country and the church grew in Ulrich's heart. Zwingli was a diligent student and loved, was, was loved by his teachers. In 1498, he traveled to Vienna for a short time to study philosophy. He then went back to the University of Basel, where he graduated in 1502. In the humanist tradition, Zwingli was taught Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, which allowed him then to read the Bible in its original languages. This helped him greatly to understand the scriptural doctrine and truths. And his studies eventually led him, like Martin Luther, to his belief in the doctrine of Scripture alone and justification by faith alone. Near Zwingli's hometown was the town of Glarus. Since they had no priest, the people asked Zwingli to be their priest. And he agreed, and the ceremony in which he was installed as priest was the same church where Jan Hus would had been condemned to death years earlier. While serving the church there, he continued to study the Bible and began to see the importance of Scripture over and against the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope claimed to be infallible or without error when he spoke officially on behalf of the church. But Zwingli began to see that the church did not abide by the truths of Scripture. And more and more, the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of Zwingli to see the errors of Rome. He grieved over the sin and corruption of the clergy, over the ignorance and disregard for God's word, and he wondered how the church could survive if it was so corrupt. He decided to travel to Bazel again and, and get answers, and there he met Erasmus and was impressed with his knowledge and respect for God's word. Shortly after Zwingli returned to Aglaris, people noticed a change in him. He, he preached powerfully from the scriptures, expounding its, its truths. He didn't renounce the Catholic Church yet, but he held up the word of God as the only supreme truth. The people responded well and learned to love the word of God. He would move and be appointed as the pastor of Grossmunster, the great cathedral in the city of Zurich. And on January 1st, 1519, he started preaching in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, friends, this was unprecedented. When you show up for church at that time, all you had was the mass and perhaps an occasionally homily. That's a short sermon of which I will not have today. <laughs> occasional homily during Advent or Lent. You never heard an expositional sermon. But that's what Zingli did, starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and preaching systematically, verse by verse, through the New Testament. In about three years of this, Zwingli recognized that what he saw in the church and what he read in scriptures were two different things. So in 1522, during Lent, he and a few of his fellow noble citizens of Zurich gathered together and had a sausage supper. Now, during the Lent, this was forbidden, according to the canon law. But Zwingli recognized that this was a tradition, and it wasn't in Scripture. Things quickly came to a head as it literally became a debate with the town council. The city of Zurich sided with Zwingli, and the city became reformed. On October 11, 1531, at the age of 47, Zwingli died unarmed on a battlefield near Capel, Switzerland, serving as a chaplain. 
He was serving to the Protestant troops, carrying only a flag and a Bible. He was kneeling over a wounded soldier, telling him about Jesus Christ when he himself then was wounded. When a soldier approached him and asked if Zwingli would like a priest to make his final confession, Zwingli utterly refused. Then the other soldier realized Zwingli was a Protestant and killed him with the sword. His body was then cut into pieces, burned, and his ashes were spread. Zwingli's ministry within the church was filled with difficult times, with abuse of power by church leaders, false teaching, people being led away and misguided by selfish clergy. Zwingli, the Swiss giant of the Reformation, was particularly indignant about the ceremony and hypocrisy and idolatry of man-made religion. The same could be said of the church when Paul writes this letter, as false teachers have arisen to lead people away into man-made religious duties that distracted them from the beauty of the gospel. And so we come back to the third chapter of Paul's second letter to Timothy, and maybe Paul fears that Timothy will just be optimistic, hoping that all of the nonsense of the false teachers will just fade away if, if possibly he just ignores it. Maybe the storm will pass if he turns the other cheek, if, if he just accepts this as normal. But history doesn't look favorably towards those that refuse to lead when there's issues in the church. The church is and will forever be reforming until Jesus comes back. And the duty of the elders is to guide the church through these changes, leading people to be faithful to God. Friends, we are living in the last days. Paul reminds us of this. And we need to understand the times. We need to understand the lives of false teachers and the ministry that they propagate. So we're going to continue in our series and pick up where we left off last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you haven't turned there, please do. If you don't have a Bible, we have some provided in the seats there, and that's on page 936, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Lord willing, we'll look at the first nine verses here this morning. So follow with me as I read. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Friends, God will not abandon his church. In a day where politics consumes our headlines more than anything, we need to be reminded this morning, friends, that before there was ever the United States of America, there was the church. And after there is the United States of America, there will be the church. The nation 
of the U.S. is an experiment. The church is a certainty. And I pray that through this series, we would learn to love the church more and more and trust God increasingly and look forward to the hope that we have when this life is over. So I want to pray and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, we come here to this place with burdens and weights that we have carried this week. And we come to sit before your word and we ask that you would come and teach your people. Build them up in the hope of your word this morning. Transform our hearts into yours. Give us eyes to see and to love your truth. We long to be with you for all eternity. And remind us again this morning of the hope that awaits us after this life. Grow us in godliness this morning as we consider your word. Help us to understand that godliness begins and ends with adoration of you. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. I have two points this morning. The first is much longer than the second. The first is the life of a teacher, verses one through five. Paul has been making his way through this letter to prepare Timothy for what he's about to face. Things are not looking good for Paul and the leaders of the churches that are that have been established. And he's encouraging Timothy to, to don't flinch, don't, don't pull back in ministry. He must press forward. And now he reminds them and reminds him of, of the issues in the church, the issues of the church of, of false teachers. And he says in verse one, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. If you remember last week, he ended chapter two by giving some hope to Timothy in regards to the false teachers of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says there at the end of chapter one, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God may free them from their captivity, but he needed to understand in the meantime, things will become difficult. They already are. This is the last days. We've been in the last days ever since our Lord Jesus came to earth. The New Testament church is and always, has always been in the last days. John Calvin has said, we have been in the last days ever since our Lord Jesus did all that was necessary for our salvation. And so for those who are asking, these are the last days right now. And as we live, there will be seasons, or as the ESV says, there will be times in which this is an undetermined period of time. There are seasons of difficulty for us as Christians. We are not promised lives of ease as Christians. Our future is stormy and hard, and we need to be prepared for this. This is the present for us as Christians, and this is the future until that final day when Christ comes for his bride. And so, friends, do not get lulled into thinking that things are just going to turn around and get better. That things are just going to change. We need to make sure that our hope is not placed in this world. We need to have an otherworldly hope, something that cannot be taken from us. And the problem of false teaching was not new to God's people. Jeremiah wrote, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination and deceit of their own minds. And the most troubling thing is that trouble often comes not from the outside of the church, but from the inside. This is a warning that Paul is giving to Timothy. He's warning him of the, the life of a false teacher. And then he says there in verse two, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now this is an extensive list. Ungodly behavior of those in church leadership, false teachers, maybe doesn't cover all of these comprehensively, but some of these are seen. If you look at the the verse, verses two through four, there's 18 listed there. And you see that it begins and ends with love. Some commentators have broken them up into three major divisions. Narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. Narcissism, which is simply the love of self, as we see at the beginning of verse two. Materialism is which the love of money and love of power. And hedonism, which is the love of pleasure. I'm only gonna cover the first one. Narcissism, self-love, and this Greek word only appears here in all the New Testament. Although each of these descriptions could flow between different categories, I find they're all, their root in the love of self. Every false teacher is a narcissist. Every false teacher loves himself more than anything. And we kid ourselves if we believe that the love of self is really not that bad. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The love of self that goes unchecked will eventually and quite logically lead us to sacrifice everyone who is not equally committed to me. It's the paralyzing fear that if I don't love myself, no one else will. If no one will think of me first, then I have to do it. So we become self-motivated, self-loving so we can be protected. It's to keep our shields up. We will sacrifice our family on the altar of ambition. We will sacrifice our loved ones on the altar of perceived peace. We will sacrifice our church family on the altar of comfort. We will sacrifice our unborn child on the altar of personal needs or convenience or hopes or dreams. Friends, the abortion industry keeps on rolling simply because the world is teaching us that we need to love ourselves more than anyone else. We need to think of ourselves more. Abortion is the anti-gospel. Because in abortion, it's their life for mine. When Jesus says it's his life for ours. See, the world is driven by self-love. Self-love will always lead us to hurt others because self-love is only committed to one person, to their needs, to their desires, to their hopes and their dreams, and that person is me. When you don't love me the way that I want you to love me, then you need to go. Self-love is anti-gospel. You cannot love God and love self equally. Instead, God says to us in Philippians 2, Three through eight, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
I want to try to illustrate this. There's self-love and there's gospel love. And you can't live in both spheres. You can only live in one sphere. If you were to draw a circle, and maybe some artist out here can draw this for me later, two circles. One is self-love, and around this circle, there, there are arrows. And can you guess where those arrows are pointed? They're pointed in. Because in self-love, you really believe that no one else will love you as well as you love yourself. And so everything's pointed inside, towards yourself. And it's a vicious cycle of life. It's a merry-go-round that has no end. Because the longer you live this way, you'll begin to realize that you cannot love yourself well enough. You always fail. Things truly don't get any better. And you keep going around and around, adapting, looking for new ways to love yourself, but it never satisfies because you can never love yourself enough. It's, it's just this wicked circle. But the other circle is gospel love. And around that circle, there are arrows. And can you guess where they're pointed? Out. Because when we believe the gospel, we are finally free to love others well. We don't live our lives for ourselves any longer. We don't only look out for our own interests, but now the interest of others. And how can we do this? He says there in Philippians 2, having this mind of yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has done, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the only way to live in the sphere of gospel love is to have God living inside of you. The, the well that you will draw from will never run out in gospel love because it doesn't find its source in you. It finds its source in God who lives inside of you. And in the sphere of self-love, you'll always run out because it's drawing from a well that has no connection to God. That well will always run dry. And so even when you try to love people instead of loving yourself, you can't continue because you're not drawing from the well of God. You're drawing from the well in yourself, and it always runs dry. And the world knows this. That's why the world says things like, you just need some you time. You just need some time on your, on your own. You need to stop worrying and caring for others. You need to take care of yourself. Why? Because you can't do it on your own. You can't love others well when you are drawing from the well of your own life. You need to be drawing from a different well. And, and the well is where you worship. So the question is, who or what do you worship? David Foster Wallace was an American writer at the top of his profession. And he won many awards for his craft, known throughout the world for his captivating style of storytelling. And a few years before he died, he gave an address to the Kenyan College graduating class. Quote, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you are enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never ever have more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that is, is not that they're evil or sinful. That's, it's that they're unconscious, that they're de- default settings for us as humans. And he's right. We're all worshipers. And Wallace wasn't a Christian. But he knew that we all worship something. In fact, he says in the speech that there's no such thing as atheism because we're all worshiping something. We're all created as worshipers. The incredibly sad thing is that a few years years after giving this speech, Wallace killed himself. And this non-religious man's parting words haunt us. He said, something will eat you alive. Self-love will eat you alive, friends. Something ate him alive. Because the well that he was drawing from ran dry. This is what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Every single one of you here is worshiping something. Jesus says in John's gospel, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see that the solution must come inside rather than pass by outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. It will leave you. It will crush you. It will eat you alive. Who are you worshiping this morning? Who are you loving most? Yourself or God? And people that love themselves more than anyone else will be proud, will be arrogant and abusive and ungrateful and heartless and disobedient to parents, slanderous and treacherous and reckless because they, they love the pleasure for themselves rather than loving God and having him supreme. Thomas Watson has said, we shall never enjoy ourselves fully until we enjoy God eternally. And he's right. The longer we chase after this self-love, the love of things, the love of money or pleasure, we prove this to be true. None of those things will satisfy. It's like chasing after the wind. Friends, there's not a redemptive syllable in the entire paragraph of verses two through four. And I'm not going to cover each one. I'll leave that up to you to study. These false teachers do not enjoy God. They do not love God. But they enjoy the counterfeit display of godliness. Paul writes there in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. There's nothing wrong with having appearance of godliness as long as it's real and it finds its birth through the power of the gospel. 
Calvin said, some prefer a gospel made up in their heads, but which leaves them free to sin as much as they'd like. And this verse describes those people who externally have on the outside beauty of authentic religion, yet on the inside, they're no different than the unbelievers that live around them. They will take the name of Christ on their lips, but don't have the power of Christ in their hearts. They are professors, but not possessors. John Stott said of these false teachers that they evidently attended the worship services of the church, sang the hymns, said the amen at the prayers, and put their money in the offering plate. They looked and sounded shockingly pious, but it was form without power, outward show without inward reality, religion without morals, faith without works. Do you want to know what keeps me up at night, what haunts my thoughts as a pastor, as I shepherd this church, and what causes me to pray the most? It isn't the programs, it isn't the services, it isn't the direction this church is going. It's that there will be people that are seated right here this morning, although having the appearance of godliness, serving the church, teaching, attending, giving, but denying the power of the gospel. God said through the prophet Isaiah, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them, God said. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And then through Jesus in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. There has always been imitation believers. And listen, friends, apart from the gospel, apart from the power of the gospel, people are just practicing a dead religion. It's a fake religion. These false teachers have all the externals of religion in place. Legalism was their jam. They have a rule for everything. It was all for appearance. There was nothing inside. They are hypocrites. This is what he's talking about, friends. And let me tell you, God hates hypocrites. And we as a church cannot tolerate hypocrites. We should not. This is the encouragement that Paul gives Timothy, that these false teachers who are imposters, we're to avoid them. This is the same word from last week in chapter 2, verse 16, which means to not stand around them, to, to literally shun them, to walk around them. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. And practically, it means that we are to perform church discipline. A healthy church is a church that believes, teaches, and performs church discipline. These teachers were not battling their sins. They're not waging war on their sin. Instead, they're indulging their sin, covering their sin with outward appearances. They refuse to repent through their inaction to crucify their sin. And the church must look different than the world. 
So to be faithful to God, we must obey God with church discipline. Jesus has his name attached to the church. So church discipline is about making sure that Jesus' representatives on earth represent Jesus and not someone else. So what and how should you relate with those that have been disciplined out of a church? The right response then for us as a church and for you as members with a disciplined member or teacher is a marked difference in interaction. Paul says to us to avoid such people, meaning that your normal relationship is now changed. You're not just buddy-buddy with them. Interactions with the disciplined individual should not be characterized by casualness, but instead deliberate conversations about repentance. Because ultimately, the main objective for church discipline is that the one that has been excommunicated would repent and be reconciled to God and then be reconciled to the church. And these are hard things for churches. They are never happy times. And we should grieve anytime we have to follow through with church discipline. Friends, we shouldn't be like these false teachers with a form of godliness. We should not just have the form, but the substance of godliness. Godliness is loving God. Godliness is what creates repentance toward God and faith in him. Godliness is the result of a great change of heart in reference to God. Godliness looks toward God and mourns our distance from him in life. Godliness seeks to draw near to him and doesn't rest until we are at home with him. Godliness makes people like God. It brings people to love and serve God. Godliness is being devoted to God in all that we say, do, and think. And when we fail or fall, we run back to God in repentance and faith. And friends, I hope you see the warning against hypocrisy here. A person can wear every form of godliness but be filled with rancidness. You can be very involved in religion and church, even never missing church, even when you're away on a family vacation. But if your heart lacks an honest commitment to God and love for him, you can be sure that circumstances will fall your way to expose what your true allegiance is. If your heart is not right, your Christianity will last only as long as circumstances allow you to have everything you want. And we as Christians are to look different than the world. We are to be different than the world if we profess to know and believe and follow God. We should be distinct from the world in which we live. We should preach a message that is distinct from the world's message. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I am sure you have no doubt met your fair share of hypocrites who say one thing and live another way. And honestly, friends, true Christians find hypocrisy as distasteful as you do. And when you find it in your own life and in the lives of the ones you love, you grieve it. We do not mean for this church to be full of hypocrites. But we do mean for this church to be full of genuine Christians. And I want you to understand the difference between the two. A hypocrite is someone who pretends 
that he is not as bad as he truly is so that he can safely remain as bad as he really wants to be. Let me say that again. A hypocrite is someone who pretends that he is not as bad as he truly is so that he can safely remain as bad as he really wants to be. A genuine Christian is different. A genuine Christian is someone who acknowledges that he is as bad as he is precisely because he does not want to be that way anymore. A Christian is a repentant sinner who keeps on repenting. A Christian who doesn't repent is like a writer who doesn't write. This is what we should be known for. A Christian is someone who has stopped pretending and is now depending on the grace of God that is only found in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross. A Christian is someone who is no longer trusting in themselves for hope, but instead trusting in Jesus Christ, depending on him by faith, reliance on Jesus by turning away from a life of dependence on themselves. And through that trust in Christ alone, he can be forgiven. She can be transformed and brought into a right relationship with God. Friends, hypocrisy is not that appealing, is it? It'll always disappoint. But faith in Christ is truly life-altering and beautiful. Perhaps, friend, if you're here, today God is speaking to you, tugging on your heart to consider Christ and what his word says about life and him. About your life. Perhaps you sit here this morning and realize that these words describe you. That you do love yourself more than anyone else. I pray and I have been praying this week through the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit convicting your heart that you would turn from your trust in yourself and your ways of living and trusting in what you think is best and turn to Christ and trust in him for hope and peace that will last for all eternity. Perhaps today is truly the day of salvation for you, friend. Don't let this morning end without talking to someone. Maybe someone who invited you or a person in your row or myself or another elder. There are many here this morning that would love to talk to you. They're the ones smiling because they've been forgiven. They would love to walk you through the gospel so that you too can have understanding and hope in him. Well, I said that was the longer point now we're moving to the second point, the work of a false teacher. The first five verses in this chapter shows us the lives of false teachers, and the next four shows us the work. It says in verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. These false teachers had secretly and subtly seeped into homes, probably large and spacious homes where house churches were meeting. And the word creep suggests coming in under false pretenses. The idea is 
they're trying to convey is, is a stealth. They're, they're religious sneaks. They're using the back door instead of the front door. And their prey, it's women. Now, this is an indictment on all women, but some women. This is a situation in Ephesus. It was a particular set of women who were immature or childish. There were these kind of women who, who would listen to anyone. And, and Paul is trying, he's, he's not trying to diminish women here. So don't take that away because you just got to go back to chapter one and see what he talks about women and their ministry of the church, especially Timothy's mother and grandmother. So he's not anti-woman. He has a specific type or group of women in mind. And these false teachers have come in to capture them. This is a military term, meaning to take prisoner in time of war. And Paul is painting a picture of passive helplessness. It says they're burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Women with a guilty conscience that is weighed down by sin and a will that has been captured by evil desires. These, these women were easy marks for the false teachers. These women were duped by the new methods of these false teachers, the new fad, the new technique that could give them hope or freedom. And said, Paul says that they're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And these men were not preaching the gospel of peace. Instead, they're preaching a false gospel of works, of doing more. And the home is a spiritual battleground. And we cannot grow sleepy and casual about it. And now I need to pause and I need to speak to married people in our midst because he's talking about the home. And so if you're single here this morning, please do not tune me out, okay? Stay with me. If you desire to be married someday, please take careful notes Look to apply this in your life. If you do not desire to be married someday, please take careful notes so that you can encourage and pray for those that are, okay? So listen for ways to pray and encourage married people in your life. First, I want to speak to husbands. Husbands, you need to guard your home. Guard your families against false teachers, against false teaching. And the surefire way to know what is false teaching is to know the truth. So husbands, you need to be in the word daily, soaking up the word for yourself, the Bible. The home is on attack and has been for quite some time. Worldly teaching and thinking has been seeping into home through the mail, through television, now more prominently through social media. And we need to be aware of this, men. We need to guard your home. You need to guard your wives from false teaching. You need to guard your wives from false thinking of what beauty truly is. As they're bombarded with unattainable images of false beauty. Engage with your wife. Lead her with regular discussion on what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. And wives, I'll come to you, but I'm going to say, make it easy for your husbands to lead. Husbands, are you aware of the false teaching that your wife is hearing? Are you engaging with her in regular discussions on what she's hearing and reading? Are you leading your wife to rest in the truths of the gospel more than the lies of this world? Are you leading your wife to understand on a regular basis that she has been forgiven completely of her sins through Jesus Christ? Or is she having to do this all on her own? Or furthermore, are you making it incredibly hard to believe that she is forgiven because you are so seldom willing to forgive her? 
Are you leading your wife to deal with the sins that she struggles with? And you may believe that because she doesn't struggle with the same sins that you struggle with, that she doesn't struggle with sin, but that's not true. She does. Do you know them? Do you know what they are? Do you regularly pray for her about those? Husbands, are you discipling your wife, helping her follow Jesus Christ? Are you regularly trying to lift the burden of her sin through the power of the gospel? Or are you there to regularly remind her of all the shortcomings and failures? What about your children, dads? How often do you discuss the false teaching that they endure on a weekly basis? Are you leading them to recognize false teaching? You cannot take your kids out of this world, so how are you doing in discipling them to follow Jesus while they live in this world? Men, you need to guard your homes. Preach the gospel regularly in your homes and rest in the gospel of what Christ has already done. Wives, you have been entrusted with an extraordinary gift to care for your husband. And some of you have been entrusted with an extraordinary gift to care for children. In regards to kids, it's a sacred thing. You are raising worshipers in your home. And one day they will leave your home and they will worship something. They will worship someone. Don't be like the woman here in this passage. Be a wise wife and mother. Strive to understand the Bible, regularly reading and discussing it with your husband. Persevere to the end. Your schedule will change over the years as your life changes, but in this, I want to encourage you women to seek out older women, as Titus 2 says, and learn from them how you are to love your husband and your kids, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be serving at home, and be kind and submissive. Do not despise the calling of God in your life as a wife and mother. And I encourage you, don't let another week go by without seeking out another woman who is farther down the road of faith and begin a relationship where you can receive help and encouragement. And on that note, older women that are here, those that are mature in the faith, who've been walking with the Lord, if a younger woman comes to you and asks, for encouragement or help, don't say no. Respond positively. Don't use excuses on why you can't do this. Allow your schedule to, to be able to meet at least with one woman and help her walk with Jesus. This is discipling. This is what normal Christians do. Wives, I'm going to encourage you to seek ways to encourage your husbands to love the Lord, to follow his leadership. Love him by submitting yourself to his godly leadership, making it easier for him to lead you and your kids. Encourage your husbands with the gospel. Don't weigh him down with the burdens of his sin. Remind him of the hope that he has because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
Forgive him when he messes up. Forgive him when he sins. And move on with the power that comes from the gospel. Friends, in all of us, we need to be praying for one another. Take seriously your responsibility as a member of this church and pray for one another. And when you pray through the directory, pray for husbands and wives and fathers and mothers that they would live lives holy and in obedience to God's word. Don't forget, friends, that the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Engage in the lives of others this week. And not only husbands and wives, I pray that you would encourage others in our church that are not married. Encourage them to continue to follow Jesus Christ. To be in the word, to be in prayer. Sometimes some of the best ministry you can have is just being a friend to someone else who doesn't seem to have any other friends. Just inviting them over for a meal. This is what we should be as a church. I don't want church to be just something we do on Sundays, but how we live in each other's lives throughout the week. So I want to encourage you to to step out this week. Reach out to another member during the week and encourage them. Ask them what they've read in the scriptures. Tell them what you've read. Pray for them. I've found a helpful practice for myself and the technology we have on Wednesdays. I tend to text a bunch of people just so I can encourage them and pray for them. It doesn't take very long. I encourage you to do the same. That's why one of the main reasons we have a church directory so we can be in the lives of each other during the week. Well, church, at the end here of this passage, things may go from bad to worse. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Now, these were, these were the names of the Egyptian magicians from the book of Exodus. And so these men, he says, these men opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. We may be distressed by false teachers, rightly and understandably. There are false teachers who plague the church today as a whole, using sly and slippery methods to creep into flocks. And there may be there's something blatantly wrong with the heresy. There's also something self-evident about truth. Error may spread and be popular for a time. But Paul is right. It will not get very far. In the end, it is bound to be exposed. And the truth is sure to be vindicated. This is the clear lesson of church history. Numerous heresies have arisen and some have seemed likely to triumph. But God has preserved his truth in the church. And he'll preserve his church to the end. As I end here, only the gospel offers a radical solution to this problem of false teaching. Only the gospel gives us a chance with the issue of self-love. Only the gospel promises a new birth, which involves being turned inside out from self to unself, a, a real reorientation of our minds and our conduct, which will make us fundamentally God-centered instead of self-focused. 
then when, when God is first and self is last, will we be able to live in this world properly and seek to give and serve like him? Friends, we, we do live in dangerous times. But Jesus promises that he will build his church. He promises that the church will succeed even when this world, even when false teaching and false teachers seek to destroy, his church will succeed. So let us not lose hope. Friends, our king is still on the throne. His rule and reign we will forever sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to gather this morning, and we pray that you would impress these things on our minds and our hearts. We pray that you would cause us to know your great gospel and that you would root in our hearts our wonderful hope in Jesus Christ that pulls us on to the future, not fearfully, not boastfully, but resting certainly in you and in your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith as we feed on this hope through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.